This morning we will continue our series, The State of the Church, and um, as I stated at the outset, it's more of a, a topical series where we're going through the mission statement of, of the church, or at least looking at how the mission statement of our church is applicable to our everyday life, and this morning we want to look at seeing things clearly seeing things clearly and as we go through this the the notes will be back here uh, just so you know as we advance through usually we're doing a, a series through a book of the bible but because it's topical we have we have scripture references and so i usually give the point and then we have the scripture reference uh scott will go back to the point um so you so you're not missing the point hopefully as he goes back to it and if you want to fill it in because he went to the scripture reference so fast. So that's just, just a little side note for you this morning. But, but we want to continue to look at uh, the mission statement of First Baptist Church and kind of breaking that down and applying it to ourselves. And next week we will conclude the series. Um, but this week we're going to look at seeing things clearly. The idea is for us... To see things as they are, not just as they were, which is which is looking to the good old days, like remember when we did this, or as we think they should be, which can lead us to delusions, but as they really are, which is reality. And then from there, we can understand better, perhaps, how things should be. So now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, to be long-sighted is a noun it's the abnormal inability to see things clearly if they are relatively close to the eyes to be long-sighted is to be having imagination or foresight however to be short-sighted is also a noun it's, it's the inability to see things clearly unless they are relatively close to the eyes which is myopia short-sighted is having short Sight, lacking imagination or foresight. Uh, derivatives, short-sighted, adverb, short-sighted. So it's, it's not seeing things far out or having no imagination. Which one do you think the church should have? I've often wondered why it's easy for churches to lose sight of the mission. I've also wondered what it looks like to see the glory of God fully alive in a church. So let's remind ourselves of the mission we've been studying. First Baptist Church exists to glorify Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, to grow in him, and to show him to others. Here's what is often the problem. We don't see what it is that we're inviting people to. I don't know how much you've thought about that, if any. But, but we need to seriously think about this on a deeper level than perhaps we ever have. Think about this, church. Let's say that you have a ticket, an extra ticket to a ball game. You're going to pretend like, you know, you can go to the Bears playoff game and you just so happen to have an extra ticket or an event, you have an extra ticket that perhaps is costly, where you have to pay money in order to go to the event, would you have any problem inviting someone to go with you 
and take the extra ticket if you're not going to use it? Probably not. You're going to say, well, hey, do you want to go to this game with me? Do you want to go to this with me? I, it, this ticket costs $200. You know, it, it has value. And, and we wouldn't have any problem inviting someone. So why is it easier for us to invite someone to a, a ball game or a concert or we invite someone to go out to eat? Hey, you want to go out to lunch? I'll buy. We, we don't have problems with that, but we have such great difficulty inviting people to Jesus. And I actually know the answer to that question. One of those is something we do. You just go to a ball game. You just go to an event. You just go to a concert. Something you do. The other requires a life commitment. And so this morning, what I thought we would do is look at seven offers that Christ has for us to enjoy. And when we're able to see what he has laid out for us, I believe it should be easier to invite people to connect with God because they're being invited to something far greater than they could ever really imagine. And so the first thing I want us to see is this. God offers closeness. God offers closeness. Uh, The book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. We read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now this verse in Revelation is not an appeal to the lost to be saved. The verse is not speaking to the lost as if Jesus is standing at the door of a lost person's heart and knocking and hoping that they'll just open the door. I know this is how um, many in modern day evangelism uh, use this verse. But the verse has nothing to do with that. But in the verse we do see Christ making a tender plea for closeness. I like how James Boyce explains it in his commentary on Revelation. He says this, Christ is knocking at the closed hearts of those who are His but who have turned their backs on him and shut him out of their complacent, self-satisfied, worldly Christian lives. The knocking Christ is an image not of Jesus calling unbelievers to give their hearts to him, but of calling drifting worldly believers to sincere repentance and renewal. This is written to the church at Laodicea, which was lukewarm. If you've read it, you know that the Lord says, because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Perhaps you have seen the painting by Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World, which hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It depicts Jesus at the door. Vines have grown against the door, and it shows that the door has rarely been used. And Christ has his crown of thorns on and a lantern in his hand, and the other hand is raised to knock on the door. A friend had complained to Hunt that there was no doorknob. But Hunt said that was the point. The door had to be opened from the inside, which shows that Christ's desire for his church 
to show effort in their relationship with him. Listen, church, God offers closeness. The challenge is that, that the church and as individuals, we would open the door to the closeness of Christ. He calls us today through his word, and he urges us to wake up and respond. We must put him first in every single aspect of our life. Look at the offer Jesus makes. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what's he say? I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The offer is of this deeper communion with Jesus Christ. The offer is one of closeness with Christ. G. Campbell Morgan tells a story related to Holman Hunt's portrait of Christ at the door. A boy was viewing it and said, Father, why don't they open the door? His father answered, I don't know. I suppose they don't want to. The boy answered, no, it isn't that. I think I know why they don't. They all live at the back of the house. The point the boy was making is that there are those who come to church, but they have their minds on other things. Right? They're ready for the service to be over. Their bodies are present, but their hearts are not open. Jesus insists on being sovereign over every aspect of our life, sovereign over our priorities, over our affections, over our choices. They're all, everything that we do is supposed to be submitted to Jesus Christ. He knocks not as someone who is begging, but as Lord of our life. And any Christian who fails to open wide the door of their heart will miss out on the closeness that Jesus Christ offers. He offers closeness. He wants us to share with him. He wants us to become a part of his family. Non-Christians often picture God as someone who you don't get close to. You just serve him out of fear of not going to hell. And that is simply not the case. God is not just somewhere out there, but God is right here, right now. Even in this verse, look at what it says. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. It is Jesus coming to us. What is the call of the Great Commission? Go into all the world. The everlasting King of Kings steps down from his throne and comes and knocks and he approaches us. Christ is always present, looking after and caring for us and leading and guiding us and strengthening and empowering us and providing and meeting our needs. He provides a closeness that only he can do. But please understand, that you will never know that closeness apart from trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord. To be a part of God's family and to know this closeness, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, He offers rest. He offers rest. The book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what I enjoy? A good night's rest. There's nothing like it. You know, one where you actually get to bed on time, and you actually sleep all night, right? And maybe you get eight hours of sleep. That's a good rest for me. I rarely get six, but you know, if, if, you get, if I get eight hours of sleep, well, that's something 
about that. You ever have times where you just constantly woke up all night long? Maybe you're worried about something or you're anxious about something and just, or, you, or you're restless. Like I have those times where I'm just restless and I'll sleep in it. And, and you, you have those times where you wake up, right? And you think, I've been asleep for like at least five hours. And you look and it was like 10 minutes. You ever had those? And you're like, what in the world is going on? And, and, and uh, we've all had those, those nights. But there's nothing like a good night's rest. And that is the thing. When Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Even the happiest man, woman, or child is thankful for the offer because we all have burdens. We all need rest. We have burdens for friends who are sick and maybe with a disease, something like cancer. We have been burdened for other people's marriages. We have been burdened while trying to do our job at the workplace and feeling like we're stuck. We have been burdened because we can't seem to get a good night's sleep and we are always exhausted and we have burdens. And Jesus says, come to me and find rest. The truth is we do sometimes have things that keep us up at night. It could be a problem at work. It could be something wrong with a family member or a spouse. It could be a relationship. It could be our finances. It could be any number of things. But often what exhausts us most is not knowing the truth in life. Let me just say that when we come to God, our spiritual worries are over. He supplies the gifts that we need to complete his work. And that is why... His yoke is easy. The yoke that Jesus is referring to here is the the yoke of the law when he says it's hard. Jesus is talking about the common folks who are growing so weary of trying to keep the law and they were constantly being burdened down by the law and he's saying this burden is heavy. It will wear you out. And even though the rabbis of the day, they spoke of of the yoke of the law lovingly. It was the exact opposite. Jesus said the scribes and Pharisees used the law to put heavy burdens on the backs of people. Paul said the law puts a burden around the neck of the disciples that neither them nor their fathers could bear. And he calls it a yoke of bondage. You see, what would happen is the rabbis of the day would concoct all sorts of laws that were meant to ensure that no one ever broke the law. And so they would make up a law so you didn't break the law. Let me show you how this progression looks. And I I might get myself in trouble here, but that's okay. I do that often. But let me show you how the progression looks in modern day society of making laws so you don't break the law. So we believe that drunkenness is a sin. It's sinful. Scripture clearly makes that appeal to us. Some would say, therefore... You shall never drink alcohol under any circumstances. So that's the first invented law. We're we're good Southern Baptists, which is why we have grape juice for communion. You should never drink alcohol under any circumstance. That's an invented law. Now, it is best to avoid temptation and appearances of evil. So you can't use alcohol to cook with. Because that is an appearance of evil. That's the second invented law. And we would not want to be impure in any way 
or again have any appearance of evil or cause our brother to stumble, therefore we must check the ingredients of all prepared food and at restaurants and we must ensure nothing is prepared with alcohol. That's the third invented law. Now, just in case a restaurant would possibly not be entirely truthful with us, and just in case someone may see us in a restaurant that serves alcohol and possibly think we might be there getting drunk, we can't go to a restaurant that serves alcohol. That's the fourth invented law. Now, you say, well, that's silly. No, it's not. I see it happen all the time. And that's the very kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Inventing laws, putting a yoke around your neck that you have, you cannot keep it. It's just a burden. And that's why he says his yoke is easy. His burden is light because to follow him is not about a bunch of made up rules. Is drunkenness a sin? Absolutely. Alcohol destroys people and families. But does made up rules concerning alcohol improve the life of the disciple of Christ? Nope. The rabbis had all kinds of imaginary rules that you had to follow. Rules about tithing. Rules about eating. Rules about the Sabbath. What, what constituted work? Well, if you do this, this is work. And if you, but this right here, this is not work. So you can do this. All these laws were a burden on the people, and Jesus lifts the burden. Jesus says, come and learn from me. Learn of grace that releases you from the bondage of the law. And as we surrender to Jesus, there is no more bondage to the spiritual burden that shackles us. It is not about having no burden, but it's about the burden being light and about it being the right burden. And it's a labor of love because we love Christ, we obey Christ, and his commands are consistent and they are true and they are clear. And when we come to Jesus, there is a peace which passes all understanding and believing in him. We experience joy in him. There is comfort in which the world cannot give. Through him, we can bear the trials and the persecution because he and he alone gives us the hope of glory. It is indeed in him that we find rest. He gives us rest. You will not find rest in any other place other than through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, he offers adventure. He offers adventure. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Do you know what's great about following Jesus you never really know where you're headed you just don't know you don't know where you're going to end up I mean here's these dudes just fishing and Jesus walks by and he says hey come follow me you know what's exciting about following Jesus when we least expect it he sends someone in our lives to minister to, or he shares an unexpected blessing. Have you ever wondered why the disciples left everything and followed Jesus? They left everything they knew, and they followed Jesus. And it's not like they hadn't heard about him. 
right? They probably had heard about him. It's not like just some random guy walked by and said, hey, come follow me. And they're like, all right, and, and went with him. But what I do find interesting is that we don't read where any of the disciples were, were saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, before we follow you, where are we going? They don't say that. He didn't even tell them. He just says, come follow me. They didn't ask. Oh, well, where are we going? They said, okay. And here's the deal. We have no record of Jesus performing a miracle for them. We have no record of a debate where these disciples were, were looking on and saw it. We have no record of, of trying to persuade them. It's Jesus just says, come follow me. He didn't say, take an exam on theology to prove your knowledge of the Torah and then come follow me. Jesus searches for them. He finds them and calls them to follow him. It entails a risk of faith and faith must be an act before it's a belief. Only as Jesus is followed can Jesus truly be known. You know why they followed? They were visionary. They were looking for the Messiah and they were ready to follow him no matter the cost. They were willing to sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus. Yes, Jesus finds them, but there is only one thing that they can do. And that is to respond to the command of the words of Jesus Christ and they follow him. Here's the thing, church. Few people are willing to sacrifice everything to join Christ on the adventure. Jesus calls you and I to invest our life, not to waste it. I don't want us to miss the primary call that Jesus is giving right here. Did you notice it? He says, come and follow me to become fishers of men. Not to become teachers or preachers or counselors or administrators or builders or fundraisers or anything else but to become fishers of men now i'm not saying that there is anything wrong with doing those things but even these must be abandoned if they become encumbrances that prevent you from heeding the call of the adventure of discipleship with jesus christ you see, while you are doing them, the call is to be fishers of men. Look at the words. It says, it says, I will make you fishers of men. And the Greek is even more nuanced because it says, I will make you become fishers of men. How easily we obscure and camouflage the evangelistic ministry of the church. Listen, church, our ministry is to be fishers of men. Man, and let me say it clearly that, that this is the great adventure that we get to be on. One last note. This adventure happens in community. The work of Jesus consisted in forming a fellowship. And in that fellowship, the call of Jesus is heard and obeyed. In this passage of scripture, the community that Jesus is forming is not a nameless, faceless community. They all have names. They're Simon and Andrew and James and John. Listen, it's vital to understand the first act of Jesus' public ministry was to call four fishermen into fellowship with himself. 
Jesus offers adventure, but it is not in isolation. Your adventure is in community with other people. Fourthly, he offers us purpose. He offers us purpose. More than just taking us on an adventure, he wants to fill our lives with purpose. As I said in the last point, he told the disciples that he would make them become fishers men. The life to which Jesus calls disciples requires a fundamental change of perspective. To have in mind the things of God rather than the things of self. It is a life purpose. Christ doesn't destroy their calling. He converts their calling. He doesn't destroy our calling. He converts it. Right? He says, you were once fishermen who caught fish and now you will fish for men. You have the gift of music? Then sing for Jesus. You have the gift of speech? Then become a preacher of salvation. You have the gift of sympathy? sympathy? Then minister to the sick and needy in this world. Perhaps you would say, I have the gift of of building stuff. Then build the church, do the work on the church, and, and work for people in the church of God. You're a servant? Then be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You see, our Lord never destroys our gifts. He simply takes those gifts and he consecrates them and exalts them for his glory. The essential work of Christ is in the form of a fellowship. And within that fellowship, the call of Christ is heard by us and obeyed. All combined for a primary purpose. And that purpose would be that we would share the good news. You know what our purpose is? It's just like the disciples. Our purpose is to be fishers of men. We are saved to share the gospel. These men at once began fishing for men. Andrew went out and he called his brother Simon. John went out and he got James. Are you fishing for men? Have you ever, in all of your Christian life, have you ever led anyone to Christ? Ever? Have you ever sat down with somebody, walked them through the gospel... And led them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Leading someone to Christ is one of the greatest joys you will ever experience. Seeing that soul that is trapped in darkness. Then seeing the light. There's nothing like it on earth. How do you fish for men? I can tell you it's not by your own cleverness or skill. That is why the Lord says, I will make you become fishers of men because he equips us to do it. And so if you want to know how to successfully fish for other people, you go to Christ for the qualifications. It does not hurt to know how to share the gospel. I walked you through several ways a few weeks ago through sharing the three circles app that you can put on your phone or use the little booklets that we have through knowing your testimony and being able to to share it, but through giving gospel literature and asking the person, to let you know what they think. And through the form method, family, occupation, religion, message, walking folks through that. However, keep in mind that God's word says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let me just say to you this morning, church, and I just, I I don't know any other way to put this than to say this. If we're not fishing, then we're not following. If you're not fishing for men, then you are not following. Fifthly, he offers fulfillment. 
He offers fulfillment. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God invites us to drink the water of life. He wants us to find fulfillment in him. You don't have to look very far to see that humanity is searching for all kinds of ways to find fulfillment. Some try to find fulfillment in relationships or their work and other people and cars and houses and money, material possession. Others try to find fulfillment in prestige or power or social class. All the while, leaves them parched and scorched and empty and they crave more. They have a burning and they're laboring and sweating. And all those who need the refreshment and satisfaction and renewal will find it only in one place because our fulfillment is found only in Christ. I love what Alexander McLaren had to say about this passage. He made note of three vital points made by Jesus, by Jesus' offer of the water of life. First, where it does not run or is not received, there is death. Sin involves a living death and finds its end in the eternal death of God's final condemnation. One escapes the cure of death only at the cross where Jesus offered his own death to pay the penalty for sin. He therefore said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Second, the water of, of life offers spiritual satisfaction now. Think of a hot, thirsty day. When a cool glass of lemonade is placed in your hand and it passes down your throat. That's the spiritual satisfaction that Jesus offers you. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives the blessings of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The very blessing that humankind desires but cannot gain apart from Christ. Through faith in him, we are reconciled to walk with God as beloved children and know the power of grace in our lives. Thirdly, the water of life offers even greater satisfaction after death when Christ returns. Revelation 22, 1 showed the eternal city where the river of water of life bright as crystal flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb and on its banks grow the tree of life with, with its never failing fruit and with leaves for the healing of the nations. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Jesus said, referring to faith in his blood and so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city of the gates there to drink from the river of the water of life forever. Summarizing Christ's invitation, McLaren says this, Brother, here is the offer. Life eternal, deliverance from the death of sin, both as guilt and power, then pouring out upon us of all blessings that our thirsty spirits can desire and the perpetuity of that blessed existence and endless satisfaction through the infinite ages of timeless being. Fulfillment will only be found in Jesus. That's it. That's the only place it will be found. Sixthly, he offers sacrifice. He offers sacrifice. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Every one of us is called to deny ourselves and take up a cross every single day. Once again, Jesus took the steps before us because he denied himself and he literally took up his cross. What have you denied yourself of in order to advance the cause of Christ? Is there anything that you've denied yourself in order to follow Christ? To the Greek, a crucified man was utterly humiliated. To the Roman, a crucified man was evil and powerless. To the Jew, a crucified man was cursed by God. But Jesus said, the cross and the resurrection are first God's word of life and second God's paradigm for discipleship. The disciples knew what it meant to take up their cross. They knew what it meant that they would that they would die to themselves. Those who heard Jesus utter these words to take up your cross. They knew what taking up the cross was. They knew it was a prelude to that person's crucifixion. Jesus was speaking about death to a whole way of life. He was taking uh, or talking about the utmost and self-sacrifice, a very death to the selfishness and all forms of self-seeking. It meant dying to self-righteousness and dying to self-indulgence and everything that belongs to you, your desires and your thoughts and your ambitions and your dreams and your possessions. It is dying to that old way of life. But at the same time, you take up your cross. The disciples knew carrying your cross meant that you are a dead man walking. Don't miss the force of his cross. There is a cross for every servant of God. And when you come to follow, we should not miss the present imperative. It is let him keep on following me. Jesus is talking about discipleship. It's a whole way of life. Taking up a cross is not something that you do once and then it's forgotten about. Well, I took up my cross, it's out of the way. Luke tells us take up a cross daily, Luke 9.23. Make no bones about it. In order to follow Christ, it means that we must surrender our will, our desires, our purpose, our designs, and our resolve to Jesus. It is the deliberate and intentional choice to abandon all that we are in order to follow all that he is. It means a total pursuit of Jesus Christ. It means that you're walking in his footsteps and obeying his words and you're adhering to his ways. It means that you're trusting in his power and that you're living for his praise. It means that we will disown, disregard, forsake, renounce, reject, refuse, restrain, disclaim, that we will do without. It means that we will say no, not to something about, uh, not to something but to ourselves. It says Hey, I am going to say no to me. And it goes beyond that. Not just saying no to self. It does require that. But it means that you say yes to Christ. It means that he rules and reigns every single aspect of your life. Finally and lastly, it is this. It is a party. Some of you are like, what? It's a party. Matthew 22, verses 1 and 2. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So, if we go to a party, it may last a few hours. 
In Jesus' day, that party would last for days or even weeks. Jesus is starting off this parable by talking about a king who's having a wedding feast for his son. Any royal occasion would be notable, but the wedding of the son would be especially significant. And Jesus says nothing about the preparations that went into making the feast possible, but it would be expected that the king would put on a magnificent banquet. And it would also be expected that people would be very glad to receive an invitation and would make a point of being there. Now we know if we read the rest of this parable, that is not the case. Because the first group that gets invited rejects God's offer, which is rebellion against God and will be eventually punished. The second group that gets invited reveals to us that both the good and bad people can enjoy God's offer. However, when you come, you must come in truth, ready to stand before the Lord. And that can only happen by faith in Christ, who gives his righteousness to us by living as his disciple. And then it wraps up by saying, many are called... But few are chosen in verse 14, which is to say many hear the outward call of the gospel to come and follow Christ. Many hear it and many even appear to respond to it. But God chooses only some of them to enter into his eternal heaven. We know who these are by a profession of faith that is verified by a godly life. Today, we can have assurance that we are ready for God's banquet and have been chosen for it in this way. We must ask, have we heard and accepted Christ's call to believe? Is our life a reflection of a follower of Christ or will you be speechless when you meet the Lord? The point I want to make is this. This is a party. You go to a wedding feast, it's a party. And I'm not sure why so often we walk around all frumpy all the time. You're invited to a a party with God. And that terminology doesn't seem to fit. You know, I was watching a news program the other day and they had a panel on there. There's like three videos of people panned in, but... When one was talking, they were showing all three. And this guy in the middle, it was so funny as I was watching him because he was like rolling his eyes and he just looked like he was all grouchy. And I'm thinking, I wonder if that's the way we look at at times as, as Christians. Like other people seem to have joy, but we're just like grouchy all the time. It doesn't seem to fit if we say it's a party. In fact, On Family Feud, the number one answer given for the name, the most boring activity, was church. Also on Family Feud, the number one place where people checked their watch was church. And it makes me wonder, why is it that we think church is boring or dull? And here's what I think. I think we often confuse fun and celebration. Sometimes I, I think we get all sidetracked and we, we, we think it should be all fun. And if it's not fun, then I'm not going. Because it's not fun. 
Or I'm not, I'm not going to go because there's no fun there. Whatever. I don't want to be a part of that. It's not fun. That, that church over there, they're fun. This church, they're not fun. But a party with God's not about fun. It's about celebration. Spiritual victories. What God is doing. How we see God, God at work. It's all part of celebration. Honestly, church should have some sort of celebration aspect to it. I mean, it does not all have to be so somber and dull and, and boring. God is here. That's something to celebrate. God is working in the lives of people. That should be something to celebrate. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is something to celebrate. We claim victory over sin in our life. That's something to celebrate. Death and the grave are conquered. That's something that we should celebrate. I don't know why we act like churches is a funeral. It's not. Where we're all sad, it indicates that God is not doing anything in our lives. But he should be. Perhaps this, this is just because we kind of continue to go through the motions. It's Sunday. Got to get up. Got to go to church. Got to do my church thing. And that's, that's good. I'm glad that you're here. But it's not about going through the motions. It's about being obedient to the Lord. You see, I'm convinced that when we are obedient, we see God move. And when we see God move, then we have reason to celebrate. Because we see God move. I mean, what happens when, when somebody, you know, comes forward here and they say, Pastor, um, I don't know the Lord and I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I counsel with them and talk with them and they surrender their life to Christ and and they say, okay, um, we follow up with believer's baptism and we baptize them in the baptistry and people usually clap. Why? It's celebration. God did something. Is our life, don't take this personally or maybe you should, I don't know, but is our life so dull that God is not doing anything in our life? I mean, we come in here on Sunday. It should be a reflection of what God has done in our life throughout the week because that's what church is. Church is, the primary job of church is to equip the saints to do the work. That's my job, to equip you to do the work, that you then go out and do the work, and then we come back and we celebrate what God did and then equip you and you do the work, and we come back and we celebrate what God did, equip you to do the work, come back and celebrate what God did. That's what's supposed to go on. And we're invited to this feast with God. What a celebration. Yet we act like there's nothing exciting about it. Listen to these words from Luke. Luke 14, 21 through 23. So the servant came and he reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. And bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Don't miss a point. 
You see, what happened is all of these guests had made excuses to why they could not come. And so all of the outcasts were instead invited. Not one single guest who rejected the invitation was allowed to come to the feast. God has a plan and it will not be stopped. God wants the job done and he wants to. Here's the beauty of it. He, wa- he has a job to be done and he wants to use us to accomplish his work. And if we don't accept the invitation, God says, okay, this person will do it. His plan will go forward with or without you. Don't think for one instant that God's plan depends on you because it doesn't. Oh, but he wants to use you. But you're not going to cancel it. And you're not going to postpone it. You either respond or you opt out. The love that our Father has for all his children in Christ is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I get to be a part of what God is doing, impoverished by sin. Broken by pain. Disabled by all our troubles in a fallen world. We, you and I, are called to come to the banquet of God where Jesus welcomes us by his grace and he satisfies us with his love. And if that is not cause for celebration, then I don't know what is. Because it's a party. It should cause us to celebrate what God has done and is doing in our lives and if you're not celebrating then I don't know maybe God's not doing anything are you seeing what Christ is inviting people to or are you missing out let me ask you an honest question this morning has your life been so wrapped up in you that you haven't even noticed what God has laid out for you What I mean is this, have you been so focused on what you want and your desires that you've completely missed out on what God offers? And maybe you've seen everything that God offers, but you think it's for someone else. It's not for you. Or you're too distracted right now. There are two ways that you can respond this morning. First, perhaps you realize that you're not inviting people to be a part of what Christ has to offer. Are you inviting others To Christ, are you sharing him with other people? Are you fishing for other people? Maybe you're not. You need to to respond and say, okay, God, I'm called to be a fisher of others. I, I need to be out fishing. Secondly, maybe you realize this morning that you are not taking part in what Christ has to offer. You're just growing through the motions You're just doing what you've always done because it's just what you do. That's no way to live. It's time to take part in what Christ is offering and invite others to be a part of it. Let's close a prayer.